That's right, the feel-good movie of the year, dear listener. Hello and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We talk about films you'll never discuss a film size course, which is possibly an exception here. I don't know. Mm, we'll, get, class, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. But, that being said, uh, we're going to be looking at uh, Prisoners. I was going to try to pronounce Delaneuve's name, and I was scared I didn't gonna get, right, get it right, and I don't think I did. I don't uh, think you did either. Delaneuve, anyway. I'm gonna I'm gonna take one really earnest, not too French, like I'm not obnoxiously French, but I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna try. Denis right. Villeneuve. Denis Villeneuve. Yeah, yeah I, I've got Vinny Delneuve in my head for some reason. Um, you know what? So. I kind of like, run with it. I kind of like Vinny Delneuve. I'm not gonna lie. You <laughs> could try it out as a nickname if you guys ever have the good fortune to meet. New I Matthew think the Morgan. hardest part about it is. I think the hardest part about it is is the Denis, because when I say Denis, it, it feels, I don't want to say pretentious, but it, it does have like an air to it that like Jacques or Jean don't. So like just starting with Denis makes me want to just roll right into Villeneuve. Well, I think this is why there's such a, uh, look, uh, I've never been to Canada, but I watched Letterkenny. Uh, <laughs> I, I, look, I think this is maybe why they portray this this big rivalry between Francophones and, and Anglophones, right, in Canada. It yeah. uh, All the French-sounding words make these humble uh, English-speaking Canucks feel like they're putting on airs to say things yeah. right. Yeah, I, I, th- I think I get it. But, yeah. uh, I'll tell you what, I think Denis Villeneuve gets America uh, because... This movie, it's got its finger on the pulse. <laughs> uh, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, in case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, oh, we must identify ourselves. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I am still Dalton uh, until I get captured and locked into uh, a, uh, a plywood shower. Right. Um, pay no attention to the sounds you hear outside your window tonight. Uh, moving right along. Uh, we are going to be doing a thing uh, when we do this show, which is analysis and not review and that means that we're going to spoil the movie and this movie is pretty plotty and so spoilers mm-hmm. probably do matter to an extent so if you haven't caught prisoners yet uh it's probably worth you know being warned uh about that but we'll stay spoiler light the first part of the show we'll have a synopsis that'll be generally spoiler light uh we'll have uh, thumbs up thumbs down reviews which will be spoiler light uh we'll expand our syllabus which will be more of a moderate spoiler territory uh, and then finally we'll get down to business and all spoiler bets are off. Uh, and so once that happens, you've been warned. So uh, without any further ado, though, um, Arthur, do you have a synopsis of Prisoners for us? I do. Um, you know, I, I just want to take a minute. I really want to take a minute to be uh, say I wish that they had called this uh, Mazes and Monsters. Um, oh, God. Oh, God. Here we are. Yeah. From, throwback to our Onward show. Yeah. Following a lauded career in Canada. Uh, with critically acclaimed titles such as Polytechnic and Incendies, uh, Denis Villeneuve entered the American mainstream with his 2013 thriller Prisoners. When his daughter and her friend go missing, Keller Dover leans into his paranoia and puts pressure onto the detective working the case to find the kids. While Detective Loki seeks out every possible route, Dover begins taking things into his own hands, including abducting the man he believes to be the prime suspect in the case. As the mystery unfolds, Loki and Dover find themselves at odds until everything finally comes to light. Named to a number of top ten lists for 2013 and nominated for several awards, including one Oscar for cinematography, Prisoners brought in nearly $122 million worldwide on a 40-ish million budget. God, I'd forgotten what a huge hit this was. Ugh. Uh, also, great, great work there, Arthur. That's uh, 
Thank you. You, you, done, you knocked it out of the park, as you often do on, on these you. primers for the film. Uh, Dustin, how does it feel uh, when you watch Prisoners and you see uh, Hugh Jackman just kind of really copying your entire persona? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen the movie before, and I'm not a survivalist. I don't have a basement full of stuff. <laughs> I know. I'm teasing. I'm teasing. Uh, I really mean. I I mean this 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 uh, this man possessed by ungovernable rage that he must that he must tame. <laughs> well, you know, it was very real, and uh, we don't need to talk about it. Um, really, yeah, so I'm funny. actually very. Ex- I'm really excited to talk to you specifically as a father about this film because th- this is a film that is. God, so, so much about uh, the fear of being a parent. Oh, yeah. The madness and the fear is real, and uh, I think it's well captured, for sure, for sure. So uh, I guess th- we better get into it then. What do, we, do we like this movie or not? Arthur, do you like Prisoners? Let me tell you what. Um, I was kind of worried. I, I, I remember seeing this in theaters, and when I came out of it, I had heard the praise uh, initially when when it came out, and I was – wasn't blown away when I walked out of a theater. I, I was kind of like, yeah, it was really good. And, and watching it here again, I still kind of, I think, feel that way. I, I think it is rock solid. I, I really do. And I think a lot of it, um, you know, comes down to a couple of things. I think Villeneuve is just a, is just a incredible hand behind the camera. I think he's a great director. Um, and I think to Dalton's point, he's probably got his finger on the pulse in a way, you know, most American directors don't. And I think that's key to Prisoner's, you know, success. I, I do think it is bloated, though. I, I will say that. I think that two and a half hours is a bit much. Um, I, I love the kind of slow character study thing that he's doing with it. Uh, but I, it, by the end, I, it doesn't feel like the mystery. And, and I don't think the mystery is the, the key part here. I think it is really the study of two men obsessed and, and kind of prisoners in their own right. Um, and so I think the, the, the mystery kind of plays second fiddle to that. And, and so it kind of gets wrapped up in a, in a way that I don't know that it works completely. Um, I, I like that the clues that do show up, I like how they're played with. I, and I like the ones that are obscured from audience view, view. And I like the ones that are in plain sight and how that all kind of, uh, comes together in the end. Um, and I, I tell you what, I, I love Hugh Jackman and Jake Gyllenhaal here, just big and loud. Uh, and somebody, I, I saw a review for this that called uh, Jake Gyllenhaal subtle, and I, I couldn't help but laugh to myself because what? there is nothing what? subtle what fucking... about that performance. <laughs> no, yeah. Um, so I'm not, I'm not going to call out the critic, but I, I thought it was humorous. Oh, that's very funny. Uh, because he does that eye twitch every five seconds, which is not no. subtle in the least. Uh, but I love those choices. I like the, I like the tattoos. I like, and the boldness to have a character named Loki two years after Thor hit and Tom Hiddleston was the biggest thing. Uh, you know, I think in, in the MCU with Loki, I, I think that's a fascinating choice to name a, you know, as far as the narrative goes, straight laced detective, you know, he's got his, his, his triggers and his, his haywireness to him, but all these, you know, all, all, when it comes down to it, I think he's a really rock solid detective, uh, and to name him Loki, I think is a really interesting choice. Um, and you know, Hugh Jackman being big and loud and, and menacing, you know, the, the, the sequences with him and Dano are, are great. Um, Paul Dano, I, I, you know, he's, he's really navigating a very fine line. And we've kind of talked about that line before, uh, where you're playing a character who's, you know, got some sort of mental incapacity. 
Um, and I think he does it in a way that, that works. And, you know, we've seen it done wrong. Um, and I think he does it well. Uh, I, there was some movie, I can't remember the movie we talked about this on where it was just not, oh, the village and Joaquin. Mm, yeah. Or not Joaquin, but Brody. the village with Adrian Brody. Yeah. Uh, where it just does not work. Um, and so I think this kind of gets that right in a way. And it's still, you know, it's just a hard line to walk. I think anyway, you, you look at it. Um, and then Melissa Leo uh, is also really good. It's just a stack cast. And, and I love a movie that is so dramatically driven with such high stakes that has that kind of powerhouse ensemble that can really sell it. Even if they are being, you know, they're acting loud or, you know, they have those character ticks that kind of set them apart. But, um, uh, I think for the most part, I, I think this is a rock solid movie. It's not my favorite of villain news. Uh, work, but I think it is, it's probably up there for me in some regards. Alrighty. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What do you say, Dalton? Do you like prisoners? I, I am largely in agreement with, with Arthur in, in a lot of ways. Um, this is probably the third, maybe even fourth time I've seen this. Uh, and yeah, the, the more I watch it, the more I do feel the bloat uh, and the more I do think, ah, oh, man, this movie's too long. But I, I am deeply fascinated by it. I, I, I'm glad, uh, Arthur, you didn't name the critic. We don't mean to drag. And I'm, I'm sorry to laugh if I laugh with such disdain. But, yeah, I'm blown away by that, too. But it is because I love Hall's performance. But it is a kind of bonkers, go-for-broke, big-choices performance. And I do like that. There is – And I think in comparison – Oh, sorry. no, go ahead, please. Uh, I think just in comparison to Jackman, it is subtle in some regard. But the character choices, I think the performance choices he makes are very distinct and very Yeah, it, it is an extremely big. mannered performance, to say the least. Yeah, it's, you know, it's fun. You know, uh, so Gyllenhaal, and if you know this, uh, the career of Denis Villeneuve listener, you, you know that he, he's reteaming with Gyllenhaal after this movie called Enemy that had just come out. And they had a great time working on it, and he doesn't have Gyllenhaal audition. And I only say all this to give context because I think the performance of Detective Loki – uh, is maybe one of my favorite cops of the 2010s, my favorite fictional cop of the 2010s. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say top three, no question. Uh, so I, I, I'm starting here because I think he is so, a big part of what makes this movie work. Uh, and I'm glad you brought up the the component of his mythological name, Arthur, because I, I think it, it speaks to kind of the high strangeness uh, that we do have going on in this film. But anyway... Gyllenhaal uh, reteams with Denis Villeneuve, and it does seem like he's kind of given free reign to just be a theater dork. Uh, and I say that with love. Like, he is empowered to say things like, these are all Gyllenhaal choices. The Freemason ring, the Zodiac tattoos, all of this stuff. These are all Gyllenhaal choices, apparently, uh, according to IMDb trivia. So, you know, potentially apocryphal, but it's fun to play in the space with that idea. Uh, and I do just love him Again, it's a mannered performance. It's big. Uh, it's kind of silly, but I, I like it, and it sets the tone very well for this film because it, it is often playing on this very fine line of big, believable human emotions and also, at the same time, this kind of outlandish uh, case of the week, Law & Order SVU comical type of like TV procedural villain. Um, there, there is without getting too spoilery. Cause again, as Dustin said, this is very uh, much a plotty film, but this being my, uh, you know, multiple rewatch on this, I, I do at this point kind of 
watch it looking for the crime movie code, as it were, looking for all of the hints that make the the, the directions the story ends up going. Uh, I'm looking for those hints that kind of, you know, determine whether or not the film's cheating. Uh, and on rewatch, it, it's not. I, I think the film plays very honest. In fact, I think it plays so honest, it's kind of shocking how obvious it is on rewatch. Um, so to your point, Arthur, I agree. I don't think the mystery really is as of much interest to the film. It very much is interested in the fallout that is this upset of the normal natural order. And I think, again, that upsetting of the perceived natural and perceived normal order uh, is what makes this film's kind of weird, dreamlike, eerie aesthetic work so well. Um, I'm, I'm excited to get into this one with you guys. I Again, I think the film's bloated. I think it's a little long. I think there's a lot of, we've again, as we've said, there's a lot of big choices that get made in this movie, and I don't know that all of them work, but I'm interested in all of them. Uh, and, and I think that speaks to the film's strength. Even when it's misfiring, it is making a choice that, that speaks to uh, an interest in something. I, I want to close... Um, well, you know what? Actually, we'll go ahead and save this for analysis. Uh, I, I've got something interesting on Paul Dano um, and his his uh, attraction to these type of roles that you mentioned, Arthur, because uh, he has acknowledged in interviews uh, that he, he does do a lot of these types of performances. Uh, so I'll close with, sure is funny that that character's name is Alec Jones, huh? And uh, that Hugh Jackman's character is a guy with a basement full of uh, prep supplies. Sure is funny. Alrighty, well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Now, I'm the only rookie watcher. I, th- this is the first time I've ever seen this movie. And so I was unprepared uh, for what was going to entail and what was going to ensue. And I will not, again, do any spoilers right now, but everything works. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, I mean, you guys talk about bloat, but I like a long, plotty, you know, procedural kind of movie that's also working on an interesting register of uh, human condition. And this is doing that and raising those kinds of questions. And so, yeah, I think it's super duper great. Uh, love everything about it. The entire cast is great. I do like how, uh, you know, Jake Gyllenhaal is anticipating the facial tics of Joe Exotic. And uh, I, Buddy, I, I could right? not not think about it the whole time. Could not not think about it. Yeah. The whole time. It's was like, he's doing Joe Exotic, not because that wasn't a thing yet. Uh, well, I mean, it kind of was on the internet, but I doubt he found it. Uh, anyway, uh, so, but I enjoy, so that was a weird choice, but I liked it. Uh, Hugh Jackman's great. Uh, Maria Bello, I, I tell you what, can she not marry a man that's just nice? That's what I want. I, uh, Dustin, that's what I want. I, Maria Bello cries uh, in a, a league beyond some of her contemporaries. <laughs> and yeah, man, she is just, uh, one of the longest suffering spouses in all of American cinema, maybe. Yeah, and that's all I want for her is I just want a movie in which she's happy the whole time. No, I probably don't. Uh, but I, I, there's part of me that just wants it for the actress. Uh, just because it's gotta be emotionally destructive, uh, taking these roles on. But anyway. Uh, Terrence Howard, Viola Davis, uh, everybody, they're great. Paul Dano, everybody's awesome. Uh, the direction's great. The screenplay is excellent. Uh, like I said, I haven't done the rewind to see if the clues were all there, but they all made sense. With the slight exception of exactly what the motivation of the bad guy from the, uh, Dark Knight movies, uh, what he was up to, uh, what was his name? Raymond? 
uh, we can clarify. Uh, we can clarify when we get to okay, spoiler yeah. territory. I, I've, I've got a handle on this aspect of the plot. Um, love that actor. Yeah, he he's got a a, a face the, for the performances he he typically gets. Yeah, cast. he's he's good. He's the Russian in Ant Man. He is the Russian in Ant Man. Yeah, he is the Russian right. Ant Man. Uh, his uh, character name is uh, Toby something or Bob Taylor. Uh, Robert character Taylor, name. Yeah. Uh, it's da- yeah Bob Taylor. Uh, David. Uh, das- Damaskian. Let's go with Damaskian. Uh, really like that guy. Uh, weird face. Perfect. A perfectly beautifully weird face. But th- there's a, a moment there where I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So he did how and wh- again the way in which he sort of just finds himself connected. Still to the family was a little strange to me. Uh, again, we'll talk more about that later. Uh, we'll get to spoiler territory. Also, uh, there's a moment of escape. I won't say anything more right now. But I'm just like, wait, how? What? And so, I, I'm, I'm again, I could have looked away. You know, there was a child in my house. So I could have been paying attention to the child for a moment. But we'll talk more about that later. I think this is a good time to bring up, though, Dustin, uh, something I, I did kind of want to mention in my review, so I'm glad you brought us back to this. Uh, this film does some very interesting uh, cursory background exposition. Um, it, it just kind of – it fills in gaps very briefly, and we can talk about those as we get into analysis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the Bob Taylor storyline is is one of those stories that is mostly told in kind of very, uh, very quick – uh, bursts of uh, exposition that w- where it is more focused on kind of the vibe of the scene than, than imparting information. Yeah, okay. So it's it's both a strength and a weakness, potentially. But uh, like I said, I'm a little, you know, again, just not quite clear on that, but I'm okay with it because I would assume that it would probably work itself out upon the rewatch or talking to my friends about it, which is what I'm about to do. So I, I'm fine with that. But yeah, I think it works. I think it's great. I think everything, I, again, I'm not, I'm not mad about the pace. I'm not mad about the bloat. I like this movie a whole, whole bunch. Uh, and, you know, and maybe because there is a way in which I vaguely identify with Hugh Jackman's character. Uh, I feel like I've been seen now, and I don't know how I feel about that. But uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk more about that at some other point. But anyway, yes, like it a bunch. It's super good. So there you go, dear listener. Those were our thoughts on the film. Let's move on into our little hypothetical uh, thought experiment that we do on the show in which we are teaching this film as part of a class. And uh, what that class would look like and how you'd go about it is entirely up to each of us. And so uh, I think there might be some overlap in what we're doing. We're bantering around some ideas. We'll see. But I'm going to go to you first. Arthur, what do you think you would do with this class if you or this film if you were teaching it in a class? So I already alluded to, uh, you know, I think the, the, the core I want to talk about, and that is acting and, and performance. Um and so I would do an acting from stage to prestige uh, and kind of just trace the lineage and evolution of screen acting uh, through through cinema. And so I would go with Richard Dreyer's stars to kind of set the text uh, for this, which outlines the different kind of types uh, actors would play into during the star system um, and kind of outline some of those those factors to look for and, and to study. Uh, and then from there, I just kind of want to work through some different movies in these kind of different periods uh, uh, and performance types of acting through through history. And so I would actually start with Dracula. I want something with some stage actors, some actors that come from a stage theatrical background. Uh, you know, the first movies, the early movies, uh, casts were rounded out mostly by these kind of crossover performers who'd come in uh, from a theatrical background. And so the performances were very stagey and projected in a different way than kind of modern acting uh, is done now. Um and then from there, I want to go into 
uh, stagecoach, uh, mainly because I want to talk about John Carradine and character acting. Um, character acting is going to kind of come back later in the course. Um, but I think, you know, character actors of yesteryear uh, aren't quite the same as I think the way a lot of people use that that phrase nowadays. And that's kind of what I want to get into with this this course, I think. Um, but, you know, John Carradine is one of those kind of great noted character actors. Uh, I think Lon Chaney Sr. is another one you could put in there as well. Um, but these guys who would just disappear into roles and at times were unrecognizable and they solely moved from movie to movie. They weren't the movie star. They weren't the A-list guy, the B-list guy uh, or gal. Um, they were, you know, hired to fill a cast out and, and kind of be unrecognizable. Um, so the, the light could shine on the star. So I would go with stagecoach. Uh, and then I want to move into, uh, in a lonely place, uh, Nicholas, uh, Ray, uh, sorry, Humphrey Bogart and Gloria Graham. Uh, and I want to look at, uh, the, the movie star, uh, performer. Uh, these, these were the, the actors and actresses who, uh, developed a star persona. Um, Dalton, what's up? Oh, Arthur, I just, look, I only wanted to chime in uh, because I'm so excited by this class you're teaching. Uh, I, I don't know if, we, we never talked about this on the show, and I don't know if we've, the three of us have ever talked about it, but we just lost James Lipton uh, of Inside the yeah. Actor's Studio, um, you know, early in March. And man, I, I'm so excited to hear you talking about this because, yeah, it's, uh, he, that, that's his whole, it's exciting. Uh, yeah. We've talked about, like, actor studies uh, on this show before, but I don't know if we've ever talked about a class as specifically about the craft of acting. And again, just yeah. you talking about uh, character actors and how they've functioned in the past. Ugh, this is this is a very exciting class. I'm giddy listening to you. So that's I just wanted to tell you how excited I was about this. Normally, I can make eyes at you. Now I have to tell Zencaster <laughs> to raise my hand. Ugh, this is great. Well, thank you. Um, so like I said, with In a Lonely Place, I really want to look at Humphrey Bogart and you probably cooked Gloria Graham as well. Uh, but Bogart was a, you know, the A-list movie star. He had a good 10, 15 year run. Um, and he was a, a movie star who had a persona and that was really the movie star kind of acting world, you know, and we kind of see this today with a, you know, a Denzel or a, a Clooney, but we don't have quite as many, you know, quote unquote movie stars anymore. And I think that goes into what I'm really going to head towards uh, here in a second. The next place I want to go is on the, on the waterfront. I want to talk Brando. We got to talk method acting. Um, there's a number of places we could go with that. You brought up the actor studio, which is key to this. Um, and so on the waterfront is, is kind of that benchmark where the, the shift, I think, starts to change from stage acting to method acting. Uh, for listeners unfamiliar, you know, method acting is where the actor draws on personal experience or reflection to get into character. And this kind of gets a bad rap when you see guys like Jared Leto who are quote unquote character or method acting, but you know, whatever. Um, from here, I, I kind of want to jump ahead. Uh, you know, in the sixties, seventies, you still got guys like Redford and Newman who are quote unquote movie stars and that kind of classic appeal to them. Uh, but then I want to get into a modern day and look at something I'm, I want to dub the, the prestige actor, uh, is where I want to take this. And I, I'm thinking of guys and, and, and women too. Sorry. I keep saying that in, in the, the gender masculine, but, um, I want to look at these performers who are too pretty to be quote unquote character actors. Now, Arthur, are you talking about a, a Denzel, a Brad Pitt, a Tom Hanks, a Jessica Chastain? These, is that kind of Amy Adams people with like mad acting chops that can't help but have star personas? Yeah, and I don't put Denzel in this because I think if you see Denzel in a movie, he's playing Denzel. 
every Denzel movie is Denzel doing Denzel doing a cop. He's doing Denzel doing Denzel as a fire inspector, you know? Yeah, which sounds more dismissive of Denzel than, yeah. And it's we, not, we so, yeah. Yeah, sure. But, but it, I mean, I that's the movie star thing. we're huge fans. Exactly. Yeah, yeah it's, it's I mean, that, persona. I mean, you saw a Cary Grant movie. You knew it was going to be Cary Grant doing Cary Grant doing a Cary Grant thing. Exactly. Um, and there may be some, you know, he may be a good guy, bad guy, but he's still Cary Grant and he's got that charisma and charm. Gotcha. But I, you know, so Brad Pitt's a good, more of a Cary Grant for yeah. you. So how does this evolve with the, the Brad Pitt's? I'm curious. I'm thinking of Brad Pitt. I'm thinking of Leo DiCaprio. I'm really thinking of Johnny Depp, who I think is kind of a, a pivot point here, who are, who are, you know, him and DiCaprio are two guys who are lauded as these teen heartthrobs. And so they both started kind of taking roles to kind of shift that narrative a bit in depth more so, I think, than DiCaprio by taking on these quirky characters, scissor hands or um, Jack Sparrow, uh, where he's doing a bit, but he's still obviously Johnny Depp. Uh, and so I think it's kind of gotten us to a point now where we have actors like Christian Bale, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, um, Hanks to some extent, um, Amy Adams. Uh, where they're going in and they're losing drastic amounts of weight or they're putting on drastic amount of muscle uh, to do these kind of awards, critically acclaimed roles without having to actually do the thing where they disappear into the role. You know what gotcha. I'm saying? Like, Absolutely. Okay. They are A-list actors who are trying yeah. to do the character thing, but because of their their look, the studio is not going to put them behind that makeup unless you're you – know, it's Gary Oldman, but that's been a shtick for 20-something years now or 30-something years. You know, he was a character actor who kind of finally got some notoriety, I think, at a, at a higher level, maybe with the advent I, of the Internet. Yeah, I, I was when I brought up Denzel uh, and Jessica Chastain even, I, I was thinking about those actors that have a definite star persona because they are so charismatic. Um, uh, but, yeah, I get exactly what you're talking about. You're talking about the actors who feel like they have to work against their prettiness and like that very yeah. big PR acting like, oh, my God, can you believe Leo ate a elk liver? Yeah, uh, yeah, I, I get exact the prestige actor. I love that that name for it because it is. Yeah, it is. Kind of Charlize Theron playing. um Elaine Mornos and uh, whatever it was, Monster. Well, yeah, and even yeah. in, uh, you know, or playing Furiosa. a mother of three in Tully, or yeah, Furiosa. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, that's yeah, a, and that's a good an example. example. She's a great example because, you know, we bring up Leo, it seems dismissive, but I think she's an example of an actor who that doesn't outshine the performance uh because with leo and, and some other even christian bale I, I think that kind of that prep can outshine the work they're doing which surely throwing the balance usually does seem to be there that the pr campaign hasn't taken over the the actual yeah. movie itself yeah it, i mean in, and that's the thing i think is sometimes these lend themselves way too much to a gimmick right you know christian bale put on 60 pounds to do dick cheney or you know whatever it might be um but i i think we're in this kind of new you know, cycle or era of of actor where everybody has to be pretty in hollywood to succeed and so how can they kind of push back against that and in doing so you know who can lose the most weight who can put on the most muscle who can take the weirdest turn or you know whatever it might be and so i think that to me is a really interesting place for us and i think jill and hall is the one that really kind of set this off i was looking at that character tick and i was thinking of actors who t you know jeff bridges is the one that came to mind in, in crazy heart and and true grit um but, you know, Gyllenhaal, you know, does this and then he does uh, Southpaw and just gets absolutely ripped uh, and then goes on to do, you know, whatever, you know, the music man and in, in freaking the sac uh, sack lunch gang or whatever it's called. Uh, and so, you know, he's a guy that's kind of <laughs> all over the place. And, and I think it's to try and get these roles that'll be somewhat acclaimed and, and you know, essentially just keep getting him hired in, in, in the same kind of work he wants to do. 
But sorry, yeah, that's where I would go with this. Went a little longer than I anticipated. Ah, uh, excellent. No, I I, no, I was I very it. excited. Yeah, I'm glad we went long on that because I think where you ended up, Arthur, is talk talking about. Uh, some really interesting stuff is it, it is as much with any aspect of the film craft it's a business as much as it is a performance and, a, and an art piece so i think it is interesting we start to talk about star personas and how how these actors have to navigate the business both in like not only the roles they take but the way they perform those roles uh, i love it and i'm going to break protocol actually because of what you just did arthur because i want to talk about my module because i think we're teaching this class together and I think my part would might actually come before your part. Uh, because Ooh, I love a break in <laughs> protocol. Dustin, are you also going to be talking about uh, the the thespian arts? Did you say I am. thespian? I want to talk about the actorly procedural. I did say thespian. Uh, yeah, let's fuck. Look, theater kid shit, man. Sorry. Uh, it, they 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 drill it into you. It's yeah. like it's like the army, except they don't actually teach you anything useful like murder. Uh, they they just teach you how to be annoying. Murder is less useful than you'd think. But moving That's right true. along, uh, <laughs> what I want to say is I want to teach a class on – or a module before Arthur really, like, like lights it on fire. Like, I want to, like – I want to, like, provide kindling and fodder for the class Arthur's teaching. And the kindling and fodder that I would wish to provide is a module on the actorly procedural. Mm. So, I mean, there's lost procedurals. I mean, if you watch Law and Order, Sam Watterson's yeah. great, but it's not actually, right? Uh, you watch Bones. I mean, I love the guy from Angel, David Boreans, but he's, you know, yeah. he's David Boreans. And you, you know what I'm saying? When we look at those kinds of, uh, of things, and of course, I mean, a, a TV example of a good actually procedural is, uh, Sherlock from the BBC, in which Bart, Martin Freeman and, uh, Benedict Cumberbatch crush it, right, in those particular roles. But they're really the, the only two actorly actors in this. I'm thinking about that stacked cast, and I'm thinking about that stacked cast procedural, yep. if that makes sense. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. And Your so, happy valley such. Yeah, yeah, and so what I want to open with is 2008's Doubt, nice. uh, which is uh, starring Meryl Streep, Demar Hoffman, Amy Adams, Viola Davis, again, uh, so again, great performances all the way around and the way in which the procedure itself, I think it pairs well with prisoners insofar as it's one of those things where you're kind of, uh, dubious about what you, well, I mean, the the name of the film is doubt, right? So you, you're, you're like in prisoners, you are in doubt about your conclusions. I think that's really, really interesting. Uh, and then I want to move into uh, an older film from uh, 1957. Uh, let's talk about 12 Angry Men and uh, Henry Fonda, uh, Lee J. Cobb, Ed Begley, E.G. Marshall, Jack Warren. Their performances are lights out, right? But they're also dealing with a lot of exposition, a lot of detail. These are talkie movies. This is a kind of Sorkin-esque kind of films before, not before, but despite the existence of Aaron Sorkin. Uh, and so that would be the next film I would want to use in addition to Prisoners. And they get with newspapers. And we talked about Spotlight a couple weeks ago. I can't remember exactly which show it appeared on when we uh, name dropped. Um, I think it was. Um, I think it was when we did uh, Taxi Driver, and I talked about newspaper and press films. Maybe that's what it was. That's probably it. 
The spotlight, I think, would come up again. Mark Ruffalo, Michael Keaton, Rachel McAdams, Lee Schreiber, uh, Stanley Tucci, John Slattery to a lesser extent. He's got less work to do. But nonetheless, great performances all the way around, right? And again, the way in which you act out the procedural process there is, is, is really fascinating. And then my last, of course, uh, you know, newspaper procedural, uh, William Goldman's screenplay, uh, yep. for, yep. uh, All the President's Men. Robert Redford, uh, Dustin Hoffman, Jack Warden again, uh, Martin Balsam, Hal Holbrook, Hal Holbrook guys, and Jason Robards. Uh, I, I man, great set of movies there and really entertaining film watching. And, and sometimes in film studies courses, it's not fun watching all the movies. And there's something about doing it this way in which these movies are all really, really fun to watch. And they're very entertaining to watch. And they're performances that are just, um, you can't look yes. away. Uh, so that's, and looking at the ways in which this, again, sort of kind of gutter level of filmmaking or screenwriting, where you're just, again, procedurally investigating crime or something bad that's happened, and you're just trying to figure it out. It's film noir without all the chiaroscuro, and rather than doing it in style, you do it in performance. That would be the sort of opening moment of the class that I want to put together. So those are my selections. Uh, Those four movies plus the fifth being Prisoners, and just stacking it all on top of of themselves. And like, let's talk about Meryl Streep. Let's talk about Lee J. Cobb. Let's talk about Henry Fonda. Let's talk so much about Mark Ruffalo. Because why would you want to do that? And uh, Michael Keaton, et cetera. And uh, moving on from there. You know, I think often so, yeah. uh, about the absolute ball of good time I had watching Spotlight in theaters. Uh, the You know, the feel-good movie of the year. Obviously, I love the sadness <laughs> for my selections. I- I get what Dustin's saying. It's it's funny though. I mean, obviously Dustin loves the sadness from his selections and saying no, yeah. they're fun. But there, I get exactly what you're saying though. There is something very engaging about watching actors really. Oh yeah, just going for. No, I mean, with prisoners, you know, I mean that that's the thing. Uh, I mean, just Hugh Jackman and and, uh, and Howard and Davis and uh, and Gyllenhaal playing off each other is just a, a ball. Yeah, mm-hmm. bellow. Yeah, everybody. Yeah, they're all absolutely swinging for the fences. You're right. Uh, I'm excited, Dustin, to, to talk about my class now because it it does also, as as yours fit with Arthur's, mine kind of fits with yours. I am also interested in the crime procedural, but I am kind of interested in the modern crime procedural and also some of its roots because I think they, we're, we're looking at crime procedurals that are very uninterested in the crime itself. Um, because I think Prestige, or I'm sorry, The Prestige, I'm looking at a list of other films at the moment. You'll have to forgive me. Prisoners. Oh, buddy. I was uh, trying to see if an article had already been written about the quote-unquote Prestige actor. So when I just searched for Prestige actor article, it just came up with a bunch of hits for The Prestige. So I get it. <laughs> oh, that must have been frustrating. Almost definitely. Uh, thank you, Arthur. I, I appreciate your your uh, sympathies. Yeah, so I'm curious. Also huge Jackman. Also so huge Jackman. He can't stop. So I, I'm curious because Prisoners is of a piece with this very weird early aughts phenomenon. I, you know, we talk about true crime a lot right now and the true crime boom, which has kind of been a very ongoing thing for the last four or five years. Uh, but the, you know, the, as Arthur's talked about the prestige performance and Dustin has talked about the, the procedural performance. I am curious about the, the procedural 
crime prestige property, uh, which again, especially in like the early teens, uh, was this weird moment. Uh, so I think we should kind of look at some of its roots, look at some of the, the things happening around this time. Uh, and, and see what it can tell us. And I, I think one of the most interesting things about prisoners as kind of a uh, a specific example of this movement uh, or subgenre, whatever you want to call it, uh, it, it is very surreal in a kind of mundane way. You know, there isn't a lot of like weird, you know, the, the kind of imagery, uh, the, the psychedelic or Dali-esque imagery you would expect to see when you hear the word surreal. And yet I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm up a tree for uh, describing prisoners in that manner because it is got a certain kind of dreaminess to it uh, in its, its, you know, characters that are not getting enough sleep. It does kind of allow it to develop this. Uh, this kind of quasi high strangeness uh, vibe. Uh, so again, I want to look at some things like Twin Peaks. We probably won't watch a lot, but I think we should sample it to kind of look at this early example of you know David Lynch using the television crime story uh, to t tell something a little bit weirder. And of course, we could probably look at Blue Velvet there as well. Uh, I think we definitely need to look at M, the the Fritz Lang film uh, from Germany that kind of is an early example of this crime procedural film that is more focused on the, the social fallout. Uh, and, you know, again, these, these German expressionist uh, stylistic flourishes that would go on to influence noir and surrealism. Uh, well, Dustin might know the actual coaching tree on this a little bit better than I am. I'm just saying all of these things are of a piece with one another. Uh, but again, I think another great example, and again, prisoners, this, this heavy focus on the fallout uh, emotionally for a family when you have a crime like this, especially involving children. I think you got to look at the much maligned, but uh, much hyped at the time uh, AMC television series, the killing uh, because that first season is really kind of compelling television. And even uh, some of this, the stuff that's not quite as good uh, what a mixed bag of a television show, but I think it offers a lot to teach us. Um, obviously I've been beating around the bush. We got to look at Zodiac, the David Fincher film. Uh, you could probably look at any one of a couple of films from Fincher. Cause he is kind of a, uh, somebody that's profited greatly off of this movement with things like the girl with the dragon tattoo. And, you know, even an earlier one like seven, uh, but, but his kind of prestige, uh, sleaze, uh, crime procedurals, I think are really important here. And I think Zodiac, especially in its depiction of obsession and its focus on the emotional fallout and the social fallout of crime, uh, I think is really great. And of course that leads us to David Simon's the wire. Again, this is going to kind of be a, a wide-ranging uh, swath. Uh, as Dustin mentioned, it's not always fun to have assigned viewing, so I think when we're looking at samplings like this, I think this is a class where instead of just watching or studying you know, three to four films, I think it is a class that's much better served by looking at handfuls of scenes and kind of seeing the, the trope and uh, story structure overlaps and aesthetic overlaps that you see in this. Again, I'm not going as far as to say it is a genre, um, but there is definitely a movement of sort of uh, gritty prestige neo-noirs that you get uh, from roughly uh, the early to mid-90s to uh, right about now-ish. Um, it, it's kind of took a – it's a movement that seems to have taken a while to coalesce, but I think there's something there, and I think there's there's a lot there we can examine, even if we use a kind of a, 
a not particularly good example, like Jim Carrey's The Number 23. Uh, again, this... Hey, now. Again, I love that movie. I think it's a ton of fun. Uh, much like you think the film Doubt and Spotlight are fun. <laughs> I think The Number 23 is kind of bad, but I love it. I think it's wacky and fun and interesting. And again, I think, uh, much like Prisoners, uh, you get to have a lot of fun when you let your crime story either be about weird dream logic and surrealism or about the, the the fallout of a city, or again, in the case of Twin Peaks, one of these kind of touchstone examples of, in this, this syllabus, uh, sometimes you get something that does both. Random note, I recently saw a movie, and I'm trying to remember right now. Wait, okay, I've got it. So, The Suicide Blonde. I saw her because I watched John Carter the other day. Are you talking is... about uh, Virginia Madsen? Um, nope. Is that who you're talking about? Who's no, no, the, no, no. the Vir- character in that? Uh, Virginia Madsen is in the movie, and she is, uh, Jim Carrey's wife, I think. But no, there's another, like, when he's, like, in his fantasy world investigating Oh, Lynn Collins, that's right. Lynn Collins from, uh, X-Men Origins colon Wolverine. Yeah, yeah, John I, Carter. Yeah, yeah, I, but I watched John Carter recently, and I'm like, I know this actress! And she's a suicide blonde from the uh, number 23. Uh, uh, that's how much that movie impermeates my brain. So, anyway, rando fun note. I do love that rando fun note. Yeah, Lynn Collins gets to have a lot of fun playing multiple characters in the number 23. It's a big, weird, dumb movie, and I kind of like it. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I actually love it. But nonetheless, class as well, I think it'd be very, very fun. But there you go, dear listener. Your syllabus just got much longer. We're going to move on, though, into the realm of analysis. You know, you can tell when we're more excited uh, to talk about a film. Uh, last week's episode over Onward, uh, we really didn't have very large, wide-sweeping syllabi. Uh, man, and then, and then you get to this week, and all three of us are, are prepared to teach, like, a two and three and four thousand level courses. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, I'm going to open up our analysis section with a section that I'm going to give a title. And it's called Rally Around the Family with a Pocket Full of Shells. Uh, we gotta talk about- I love this. <laughs> I love this. We gotta talk about Hugh Jackman uh, being a Jack Bauer type. Yeah, is that what you're getting at? Uh, well, there's that, and, and the way- uh, there's, there's an observation that I was sort of making as I was watching the movie that uh, a person like Hugh Jackman is looking for the opportunity for the efficient distribution of violence. That's- <laughs> There's a way in which he's almost set his whole life up for this moment, but he's not a guy who's going to act out. He's not a guy who's going to go, you know, shoot up a mall, but he's also looking for the chance, the opportunity, the permission to kidnap Paul Dano and torture him. Yeah, he's looking for the excuse to overreact. You're absolutely – I mean like this is kind of his establishing scene with uh, him and his son going deer hunting, right? And this this kind of monologue that he gets that lays out his worldview. Uh, and it isn't till later – and again, this is – I mentioned this background exposition the film does. But what you're talking about with his Kel- character, Keller Dover – and boy, <laughs> howdy, is Keller Dover the name of a man who is ready to pop. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, Boy, uh, but yeah, Keller starts the film like lecturing his son about like the need to be prepared and the need to feed yourself because the shit's going to hit the fan, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Dustin. He is this very specific American masculinity uh, that is looking for the the moment uh, that that likes The Walking Dead a little bit too much for some weird reasons. You know what I mean? 
uh, th- that kind of cat. All um, all I'm saying is that Color Dover is right now at a state capital marching to reopen the country. Buddy, you're absolutely correct. And I think um, two very interesting things, and maybe we'll get – you know, when we kind of evolve our analysis and we get to talking things about ideology, we can talk more about this. But uh, the handful of things we learn about Keller Dover's father outside of the monologue we get where, you know, Keller says, hey, this is why you need to be prepared, just like my dad said. Uh, we learn that he was a corrections officer, a landlord, and he committed suicide, uh, which is a troubling role model for any young man to have growing up, uh, to say the least. To say the very least, yes. It, it, you, it's super problematic. Can I bring up some... Can I, can I bring up a question here? Do, do you yeah. think his dad actually committed suicide? Yes. I don't have a reason to think otherwise. Or do you think, Arthur, are you impl- – hold on. Arthur, are you implying that Keller murdered his father? I don't know, but there is a very specific instance of the camera leaning on the phrase, there was no note left, that I could – Now that's interesting. That I think kind of throws that into question. I think the way the camera lingers on Gyllenhaal reading that article and focuses so heavily – on the actual text on screen of that 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 sentence is really interesting. Uh, that he'd already in light done of that character. I had totally missed that, and um, I'm I'm so glad you caught that, Arthur, because that's incredible. Yeah, and does speak to if that is the case, uh, it just tells us even more about Keller. This deeply like this this man who is ready to do violence and as dustin said is using kind of the platonic ideal of the american you know nuclear family as this rally around the family with a pocket full of shells Uh, there is this impulse to look for a reason to circle the wagons right to to have uh, your coronavirus moment and say not here this is where i stand uh you know with my uh, I, here i stand in my yard against 30 to 50 feral hogs with my assault rifle uh yeah fucking a i get it uh i yeah i grew up in the south i understand this impulse but i, I think you're right to to name this section of analysis that dustin because it is a yeah it's an interesting observation about masculinity and as arthur said a masculine impulse that, you know, might lead to patricide uh, if gone unchecked. Well, I, I think that's where it goes. I mean, obviously, clearly, that's a place where it would go wrong as well if you murder your father. And obviously, it goes wrong when he kidnaps Paul Dano. and A man who's clearly, you know, intellectually uh, uh, troubled in some capacity. And, and yet the film does a good job of making uh, the assumptions that are being made by uh, – uh, Keller, whatever his last Dover, hit what hit by those assumptions are not entirely off base. Uh, Alex Jones is connected to the kidnappings. He absolutely is. He does turn out to be right. Yeah, as and you're right. Dover mentions uh, well, he's got an accomplice. You're, You're absolutely right. We do learn by the end of the film that Keller's more wrong or more correct than he's wrong, except for doing what he does. And what. What's I mean? That's where you cross those moral lines, right? And you torture somebody, or you do a murder, or you you know buy all the toilet paper at Walmart. Frankly, uh, you do those things because you are saying to yourself, "I'm going to be the man. I'm going to be this provider. I'm also going to be the one who is officially distributing violence." Whatever that violence happens to look like, whether it's consumer violence, whether it's actual physical violence, whether it's emotional violence, terrorization of those around you. Like, there's a way in which this movie really interestingly interrogates this idea that 
I going to really truly be a man, this, this, this particular version of masculinity, that means I have to be right on the edge, the reactive cusp of doing this kind of violence uh, in order to keep my, that it'll be justified because I'll keep my family and my people around me safe. And yeah, the Western, yeah. no, uh, you're sorry. Fine. I don't mean to interject, but yeah, the Western Uber, the Western Uber dad, um, uh, Western and, you know, large W to refer to, you know, uh, Europe and the North America, uh, not Western as the a film genre, movies, right. but uh, yeah, yeah, the the idea, this kind of ideal uber dad who, you know, we see this in something like uh, Force Majeure. I mean, you know, it's we get this conversation and this idea in a lot of different contexts. But but you're absolutely right that it does speak to something, Dustin. Like the, this expectation um, towards, or at the very least, this this idealization maybe uh, of that being ready to snap. Yeah, the guy who likes The Walking Dead a little too much. I think it's a great thing because weirdly enough, uh, and again, you've named me and I feel like I've been seen and I have to address this right now. My son and I have been rewatching The Walking Dead lately for obvious reasons. And uh, like we're talking about like, okay, if things really went south, what would we do? And he had this thing he said is like, I feel like you're too prepared for this, dad. And... <laughs> You've been dunked on it by your own not an awesome moment for me as a parent. <laughs> but at the same time, go well, ahead. Well, don't worry. Well, Dalton and I have often joked about if there ever was any sort of apocalypse, you would be the one to a survive or b lead us through it. So okay, he's not well, wrong. Well, I mean, maybe. I guess thank you for the encouragement, but at the same time, maybe not <laughs> because Hugh Jackman. Because it's so very, very wrong. And I, I, I think there's like this way in which there are, uh, needs to be prepared or whatever, but I think there's also a culture that's being created where every man is the hero in his own post-apocalyptic, post-abduction, post-coronavirus, post-whatever world. And that's toxic. I think uh, Mystic River is another great. I can't. I can't believe I forgot to mention Mystic River when talking about my syllabus because uh, it is kind of a great example of that. But I think Sean Penn in, in that film is, is another great uh, screen encapsulation of this this character trope. That I we're haven't seen the movie, about. so I don't know. Oh, that's too bad. I, yeah, I, I think he's he's got a lot of shades. Uh, he's got like a crime background in that one, uh, so we get a lot more kind of info on his history. Uh, than we get on uh, Dover in this film. But yeah, it, it is such a a destructive character, and I'm glad that Prisoners is interesting in interrogating uh, the impulses of that. And again, I think I brought up Mystic River because it, it seems similarly interested in kind of looking uh, asconce at, at that kind of... Uh, the necessity of that sort of thing. Um, do, do we have any further thoughts on what Dover represents uh, and uh, his his psychology? I do not. And I'm happy to do you, Arthur. No, no, I think we pretty much fleshed him out. Okay, so I want to move on to another section that I've also titled. I, I, I'm calling this section "Take Me to Church" uh, <laughs> because I want to talk about the war against God. <laughs> 
Oh God, I'm so glad. Uh, I kind of do too. Let's let's go ahead and go there, and we can circle back to some more performance and and singular character based stuff. Uh, do you mean just the, the the idea, like Melissa Leo and her her husband's campaign? Uh, it, it is a very it's yes. Well, well, describe the campaign. Go ahead. Okay, so yeah, please, and this will help you, Dustin, because you can be reminded now. We can discuss the character of Bob Taylor now that we are wantonly discussing spoilers. So. Melissa Leo and her dead husband uh, lost a child to cancer, and so they started abducting and murdering children to make other parents lose their faith because they're so mad that God gave their kid cancer. What a buck wild uh, Law and Order SVU, as I said earlier in the show, premise for a movie. Yeah, it's it's cuckoo banana pants, and yet. <laughs> the the emotional life of all of these characters is so accurately sketched and everybody is being such an acting nerd about it. Like Melissa Leo told the prop team not to clean her glasses between shooting days because she wanted them to accumulate. Again, uh, IMDB potentially apocryphal trivia, but here we are. It's a fun story and I like the legend. Uh, yeah, it, it's a weird premise, Dustin. And so Bob Taylor is one of the children that they abducted and he escaped. Uh, and okay, why, I gathered but, that he was an abducted child. I did not realize he had escaped. Yeah, he's an abducted child who had escaped, and Melissa Leo mentions that she had totally forgotten about him until he showed up on the news as having uh, killed himself. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's he becomes obsessed with yeah. enacting. Like, apparently he lived there for quite some time, much like Paul Dano, uh, and, you know, saw other murders and became obsessed with uh, bloodlessly reenacting his childhood, uh, his very traumatic childhood. But yeah, so to that end, they yeah they spend a lot of time doping these kids up on like a uh, purple wait, drink wait. that's made so of did, LSD and oh go ahead. How did he have the socks or stuff that matched the other kids though? Ah, so this is a fun moment where the film reveals its red herring to us way before it reveals it to Gyllenhaal, and it's a pretty much entirely silent scene. But we do see Bob Taylor break into the, the house while Hugh Jackman's out torturing Dano. And that's when oh, Melissa, right. Melissa Leo, because it's, it's the moment where uh, Maria Bello is like kind of cracks the case, but because she's depressed and on sleeping pills, everybody thinks she's just doped up and won't listen to her. Uh, but yeah, she realized somebody was in the house and that's how he got those clothes. They were not I, clothes that they had on them. They were clothes he stole. I knew he was a weirdo and he was obsessed with the family that I did not realize he was stealing clothes. That completely makes sense. I'm with you now. That, okay, I'm so there. It's yeah, great, he's, actually. he is the, he, exactly. It's, it is kind of a, and again, it's, it speaks to all the, the extensive background exposition this film does where it's filling in a lot of blanks. Uh, in the, in the, the margins speaking to that, uh, we have this, <laughs> the fact that we learn basically at the start of the movie that one of the villains is already dead, uh, because a priest killed him. Right. Uh, which is a, a, a priest who is a convicted, uh, pedophile. Actually, uh, I love a, that. I love that whole what, line. It's, it's awesome. It's, inc it's incredible and such a weird, like, again, I see why you don't yeah. think the film's bloated, Dustin, because yeah. I brought up the, the TV crime procedural because it, it does feel like this show could have very easily turned into a Netflix uh, limited series where every character had their own episode. Uh, that's probably true. So, okay. And again, I, I don't like that version, but yeah, like just that weird detail that Melissa Leo's husband's already been murdered and we don't really get to connect those dots until later in the film. Uh, but yeah, he's, he's waging this war on God, told a priest about it. The priest murdered him. And that is a breadcrumb that detective Loki does not realize the relevance of until basically the end of the movie. Also priest did the right thing. Moving on though. 
uh, <laughs> the idea of this war on God. I, I think this is interesting because, you know, the movie opens up with Hugh Jackman reciting uh, part of the Lord's Prayer uh, in you know, reference uh, which strong connection to violence and the shooting of this deer, you know, hunting thing, and then like defending and taking care of your family. And this idea that uh, the uh, Holly uh, Jones's uh, family, you know, since they lost the son to cancer because God gave their son cancer. Like, again, God is all over theology of theodicy specifically is all over this film. Odyssey is the problem of evil. Yeah, the problem of evil. Yeah, and it, it, it's a it's a fascinating sort of investigation of that because what uh, her reaction along with her murdered husband is to say God did this, and so they so there there's a way in which they remain in the tr- the 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 camp of the faithful. They remain with those who believe that there is a God. And that God indeed controls every aspect of the universe. And God decided to push the cancer button on their child. And therefore, what they're going to do is make the choice to murder all of these children to make people disbelieve in God. Which is really fascinating. It, 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 is, it is people who uh, strongly believe in God and they want to give God bad press. Yeah, it's As it's a truly yeah. yeah, it's a wild plot point for a film that is this emotionally real to have. Uh, but again, it, it ties into very wonderfully with Detective Lee. You know, we get these that nugget that he uh, spent time in a boy's home, and that kind of mm-hmm. tells us everything we need to know about this character. Like, I would uh, hurt you, and I would have a good time doing it, Father. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But again, that, that little nugget about him and his relationship to just being in contact with that priest, and it ties back to Keller Dover and the, your rally around the family thing. This is all – these are all themes that are very much of a piece with each other. And in terms of interrogating uh, people's reaction to evil or in the problem of it and like how, how do you prepare yourself for inevitable emotional devastation? Like what, what does that even look like and how do you prepare for it and how do you move past it? And, you know, some characters like uh, Melissa Leo's Holly Jones do not uh, and Keller Dover doesn't uh, until, you know, after it's too late. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, although he does offer a prayer for protect his daughter, which I'm not going to say it works, but I'm going to say she is saved. Well, and I think that brings us to a kind of another interesting moment. The police captain says something interesting at one point, like uh, uh, at, when we think Bob Taylor is the perp, right? And he kills himself, and, and Hall apologizes to the police captain. The police captain says, uh, fuck your sorry, save it for the girl's parents. Uh, that's kind of, you know, ditto that for Hugh, like praying for absolution for torturing Paul Dano, right? right. Like as, as much as he does, you get that, as you said, that moment where he does pray for that. There's also this moment where he's praying for absolution as he tortures this guy who really can't help him. And it, it is arguable, uh, that detective Loki probably would have got to Holly Jones quicker if he hadn't had to spend so much time keeping tabs, uh, on uh, Keller, but on the same hand, if Alex Jones never goes missing, then maybe it doesn't get solved. It is an interesting web of, of grays uh, as we start to interrogate the question of like morality and you know good and evil and, and God and the devil in this film. It does get very murky very quickly in a way that I think is interesting. And I'm going to just come out and just simply say, I don't think God is a character in this film. 
at all. No, I think There's I think no uh, this film's no, I think this film's fairly agnostic. Uh, it, it, it definitely feels to me a film that is uh, uninterested, uh, which I would say, yeah, God, God's not a character in the film. Well, I would say it's this uh, because of the uh, choice that uh, – and, and I didn't really read all the trivia, but the choice that Jake Gyllenhaal makes by wearing the Masonic ring here, uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say the film is deistic, that I think the film does believe in the existence of a god – who has wound up the universe and we're doing what we're doing. It is what we do and that we are a hundred percent responsible for making the choices that we make. And that is it. And God is not pushing cancer buttons. God is not pushing kidnapper buttons. God is not pushing uh, whistle buttons. That's just simply <laughs> what happens. Yeah, we have been kind of circling around it without acknowledging it. But I mean, yeah, Detective Loki is the the guardian at the door, right? Like it, it is not an accident that he is given a, a, a mythological deity's name right. in this film about war on God. Uh, it, it is a, a, a just a kind of a weird, as Arthur mentioned, a weird choice that I think is so specific and gives the film uh, immediately gives it that dreamy quality that I think doesn't really come to fruition until the you know the final thirty minutes when basically every character hasn't slept for more than a couple hours at a time in days, uh, which I, again I think kind of lends this weird vibe to the film that it brings it back to this this kind of theological place you're talking about, Dustin. It it gets it to a, a point where the aesthetic and vibe of the film is kind of weird enough that those questions make a lot of sense, even though it is just a crime procedural at the end of the day. So that's the first thing there, right? So the God of the film is a, uh, is a deistic kind of understanding of God. The two other things I think the film is doing theologically is indicting two particular kinds of theology. It's indicting Holly Jones's uh, exhaustive, definite providence that everything that happens because God does it. Because if you think like that, it will make you crazy pants. I think that is actually accurate. And, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly turns God into something of a monster as well, if you go with that. The other side is indicting Hugh Jackman's uh, particular kind of theology in which that absolution can be sought. And that is going to somehow erase every evil thing that you've done. That somehow forgiveness is a pass. And uh, there's a particular kind of evangelicalism. Uh, there, there's a sort of Puritan... Uh, Calvinism that's being, uh, being, uh, again, sort of, uh, totally, totally. uh, run, run away with Holly Jones. But with, uh, Hugh Jackman's process, it is a particular version of evangelicalism that's just pop evangelicalism. It can be within a Calvinist or a more, you know, Wesleyan or Pentecostal frame. It doesn't really actually matter in terms of, uh, those particular theologies. But evangelicalism in general says, if you say you're sorry, then, then we have to act like nothing ever happens without any sort of repercussions. That there's an expectation of no repercussions. Yeah. And I think the film indicts both of those things as toxic, which from my yeah. point of view, helpful. I like that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's why, that's why I brought up the comments by the police captain. Absolutely. I think the film directly indicts it. And yeah, it is helpful to the, to a larger conversation about culpability and yeah. uh, justice. So are we done with theology? Do we want to move on to anything else? I think we can pivot to Paul Dano. Uh, Arthur's no. mentioned uh, no. 
you know, Adrian Brody as kind of a low point. Uh, obviously, Tropic Thunder gave us a, a useful scene for looking at these, but we we don't need to quote it here. We're not children. So this is the second of the show I want to call Pet Sounds. Moving right along. Go ahead. I've got a music yeah, reference I, for well, everything. Ah, ah, ah. There we go. Thanks for the music references. You were on fire tonight. Uh, yeah, I, well I, played. Man, that is really well played. I, well, to that point, uh, you know, Paul Dano in, uh, Love and Mercy, uh, the biopic about, uh, Brian Williams. Uh, this is yeah. Wilson. Thank you, Arthur. Sorry. Uh, this is, this is Paul, Paul Dano's sweet spot. You know, this is where he, he lives and breathes. Uh, he, he has acknowledged it again. Uh, he, he has said, uh, uh, that he's drawn to his, uh, let, let me just read it as written on IMDb again. A useful, uh, a useful tool today. And let's be honest, uh, whether you're a professional film critic or just a big film dork, we all know it's the first place you go as soon as you finish watching a movie. Uh, Yep. So per, uh, per IMDb, Paul Dano admits to being attracted to roles of this nature, characters learning difficulties, screaming, nonsensical ranting, and he says he draws on his own personal and private experiences to perfect these recurring roles, and I, I like how vague he is about that. Uh, and it does lead me to believe that, you know, Paul Dano's either had his, you know, his, his own struggles with, you know, mental health that have had him in moments where he can't be coherent or he's, you know, has family members who have, have their own difficulties. But I, I like an actor acknowledging that, hey, yeah, I know I do a lot of these. I promise it's because, like, I am trying to draw from my private life to Arthur's point about the method actor. It, it is an actor saying, I, I really am trying to be method in a way that's respectful uh, and I think I think yeah. that's why I like it when actors keep their process private. We don't we don't need to know what they did to get ready for the the, the role. It might honestly. I don't need to know. Ahead. Well, I I don't need to know about Jared Leto sending a, a dead rat in the mail or or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, for his quote unquote method acting. His character is it like dog turds he does. sends? I forget now. Uh, I believe it was, uh, there were some used condoms involved. It, it was gross. It, it was all gross. Nobody yeah. liked it. Everybody almost beat him up. Uh, if he had done it at, you know, a real place of employment, he would have gone to jail probably. Yes. Uh, but yeah, you're absolutely right, Arthur. Outside of that stuff, yeah, I, I don't need to hear about that. And I don't know that I need to know that Paul Dana, like, spent time at a, you know, a, an intensive care facility for, you know, children or, or young adults with, you know, ambulatory or, or cognitive issues or anything like that, right? Like, he might have done that. He might have a relative that he's close to that has some struggles. But we don't I, – I, I respect Paul Dano's privacy enough that, like, I don't really need to know how he prepares for a role like this. Uh, but it is nice to hear him acknowledge it and, and try to seem seem to try to come from a place that's respectful and as uh, – uh, seems at the very least aware uh, that he's he's playing in a dangerous space. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, I love his performance, and I, I, I love what he's doing with this particular role. And I, I want to mention the makeup, the makeup that they use for a swollen face, Paul Dano, uh, when Viola Davis sees him. It's awesome. Buddy. Just it, it's, it's that's what that that's what it, that reveal. Yeah, the reveal when he pulls the uh, the pillowcase off, or she pulls that pillowcase off, uh, it is grotesque and scary, and just it, tragic. And I mean, shout out to the makeup department here because it is just a phenomenal job. On yeah, that. I'm glad you, you brought it up, Dustin. It's it's deeply horrifying, and uh, you know, more than a little accurate. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. Can confirm. Yeah, I've seen people beat up that extent, and that's what they look like. And it it looks like Paul Dano been beat up that extent like so without losing his like what, personal distinctive features 
in the way it's 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 just it's too good. It's actually it was pretty upsetting. It, well, and I was just about to say it does kind of bring back to the realism of the film. Like for all of the kind of surreal touches I've talked about, and I, again, I think it's just kind of a, a, a feat of you know mazes being a recurring feature of the film. But to its 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 nudges towards realism, whether it's Maria Bello's weeping or Paul Dano's face, uh, it is a film that do, does really seem to try to interrogate and and seems invested in. Uh, you know, the fallout of something like this. And I, I think Paul Dano, uh, the extent to which we see him abused is maybe almost too far, but I think is important to, it really needs to make Keller Dover the bad guy. And it's a, it's a yeah. big ask for the audience to accept Dover as, as the villain at a certain extent, because he is, you know, as, as Dustin said, this, this, the rally around the family mentality, uh, it, it's a distinctly American thing. And I, I think that it, it speaks to why this film was, you know, well-received and very successful. It, it, it is an impulse that I think a lot of people understand. So it's a big ask when we have to kind of turn on Dover. Uh, and I think what Paul Dano has to perform and experience or perform experiencing is pretty, pretty unsettling. And I, I think is, yeah, while, while maybe hinges on exploitative, I, I think is necessary. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, it's a big ask. Absolutely. What do we think about, uh, we, we all seem in agreement that Paul Dano's good and doesn't like cross any boundaries. Is there anything in particular that you can quantify about the performance that like leaves it in an acceptable space to you? I think for me, it's just, it never feels like it kind of lends itself to caricature mm, okay. that we kind of expect. You know, and I think that's the thing with Brody, right? In, in, the, in the, the village is that he's really playing into these kind of stereotypes of what we expect, uh, you know, a character like that would, would look like and, and the kind of comic approach that's always been taken to, to a, a character with a, a mental, you know, disability or, or, or anything. And I, and I think Dano plays it with such a earnest sincerity, um, that makes it believable without relying on those sorts of stereotypes that we kind of expect, I think. Well, I think it's the absence of lines. I think the screenplay is to be given some credit here. Because yeah. there's a handful of scenes uh, when he's with Hugh Jackman being tortured, and he doesn't say anything the whole time. You're absolutely right. It is a lot of body work, and I, I think maybe the highlight of it is uh, after the hammer scene, he collapses into Terrence Howard's lap, and uh, it's a great moment between two actors. Like uh, Terrence Howard and Paul Dano get to have this kind of quiet moment, reacting. You know, Hugh Jackman obviously is going very big, and the camera gives us enough time to spend a moment with Dano and with Howard to to live in that moment with him and live in what a what an upsetting thing they just watched was because it's you know terrence howard is obviously bought into dover's bullshit and at least either he's afraid of dover enough or he believes dover enough that he's there torturing this guy and yet do or um uh, uh uh, franklin couldn't think of his character's name terrence howard's character franklin and, and paul dano uh like are equally terrified of dover in that moment and kind of like it's it's a weird moment that I really like. Uh, 
yeah, it's it's horrifying. Uh, and you're right, Dustin, that, that absence of lines certainly helps. And I think Paul Dano is really great in his moments of fear and his moments of confusion. Um, I brought up Terrence Howard, so maybe this is now a good point uh, to, to talk about, I don't know, just how many characters get dropped off the board here. Uh, and with as much ground as this film covers, uh, whether how bothered we are by that. Uh, Arthur and I talked about bloat here. Uh, and I think maybe one of the reasons I'm frustrated by that bloat is there's so much we do spend time on and so much we don't spend time on. And after um, Nancy and Franklin, Viola Davis, Terrence Howard's characters come to an agreement that they are not going to help or stop Dover, they kind of disappear from the movie until like the last 10 minutes. Uh, and I'm, I'm frustrated by that because uh, Dylan uh, Minette, who plays uh, Ralph, the, the, the eldest Dover child, uh, and then the the Birch's oldest child, those two characters kind of have quite a bit to do in the early stretches of the film, and they also disappear. Uh, and I think having one of the two couples kind of completely disappear and having the older children disappear is kind of a bummer. Now, it, it does seem to serve a function uh, within the, the realm of the screenplay, but uh, do you guys have any thoughts on that or do you, any frustrations on that? Is there any missed opportunities here uh, spending so, time, I, I so much time away from those characters? Well, the first thing is what I want to say is I want to shout out the uh, actor who plays uh, the uh, the Dover son, who is also in the what is that, that mixtape suicide Netflix series, uh, Thirteen Things. Yeah, Logan Wyvers. Yeah, yeah. Thirteen Reasons. Thirteen Reasons. There you go. Uh, good, good show, and he's a good actor, uh, and he doesn't do as much work here. Uh, the second thing I want to say is. I mean, you're right. These characters do fall out, but I'm also thinking about how much longer this movie would be, and yikes, uh, if we did something more with them. So there's a little bit of that, you know. I got to think about that. I wonder about what's on the cutting room floor. The other thing, though, is honestly, I think this movie ends up having to be about white people, and so we've got to move from them. And so you've got Viola Davis playing uh, kind of a, I mean. This is a this is a critique I've been thinking about for a while. This kind of uh, stereotypical, strong, stoic black woman, right? And Terrence Davis playing this particular version of this sort of emotionally connected African American man. And now that they've done that, well, what else are they? I, I don't think. I mean, I think they're great actors, and I think they act the just excellently with what they're given. But honestly, I don't think the movie cares about them. No, you're absolutely right. And well, uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned that because, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of what they, – they serve those kind of tropey roles and then they disappear. Uh, and I, I think you're right, Dustin. The film just kind of ends up not being interested. Arthur, you, you had some thoughts? Well, I was just going to say, as, you know, as far as the, the Howard and, and Viola, I think that with the screenplay knowing and the movie knowing that they're getting their kid back, I, I think it, it knows mm. they can avoid really going. I mean, it really does become a movie about Dover and, and uh, yeah. to some extent Loki. And so I think, you know, having that in the back of the mind that, you know, this, this family will get their child back with little to no conflict, uh, you know, and, and kind of serves as the uh, accelerant into the final portion of the film. Um, I, I kind of wonder if that's why they do drop off. Um, you know, the kids kind of feel there as well for narrative purposes. And, you know, I'm not really as interested in the kids anyway. I, I think, you know, Howard and Viola are much more interesting uh, dynamic. 
Um, but the, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say something else. Um, shoot. I don't remember. Oh, I, I was going to say, I, I think it was, it maybe an IMDb, uh, but I know that the, there was mention that the original cut of this was around three hours. Um, and I know they cut it down one to avoid the NC uh, 17 rating. Um, but also to, Yikes. you know, just trim it down to, I think a, a more, uh, palatable length. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm with Dustin. I'm kind of wondering what else is on the cutting room floor. Uh, cause I wonder if it does bring them in a little more, but yeah, that would make sense. And uh, I think you're both right. Uh, it, it makes sense that the film needs to go elsewhere, but yeah, it, it does feel like a missed opportunity to me a little bit, but uh, yeah, we, we got to make time to get into the fact that Melissa Leo is playing an archetypical villain, the likes of John Doe from seven, uh, <laughs> who has some sort of giant, uh, mythologically weird, uh, internal mythology or an internal architecture for their, their crime pathology. And I, again, I want to kind of double down a little bit though, because I don't think the movie is interested in questions of race. I don't think it wants no, to have that no. conversation. And I think it knows it has no. to, if we deal more with those characters and their friendship uh, with the Dovers. I think the subtext is there. I think uh, it, I think Viola Davis, Terrence Howard, both like do some interesting things with their performances. That's, speak to some subtext in that friendship. Uh, and again, you know, I might just be reading into it because I like those actors a lot. Uh, but, but there are beats where I'm like, I, as soon as you mentioned, uh, them having sort of archetypical roles in the film dust. And I was like, yep, that, that checks out. That resonates with my read on those characters. But I think within those performances, there are moments where the, both actors seem to know that they're kind of stuck in the margins of a larger film and they make interesting choices that speak to that. Uh, and again, that's that's my read anyway. Yeah, I think that's fair. That's fair for sure. Now, I have no more music uh, titles for analytical threads, but if we have any more analytical threads, I'm happy to talk about them before we move to the conclusion of the show. Uh, I, I think the, the last thing I'd like to touch on, we've spent a lot of time talking about Dover, and I guess I just want to circle back to Loki. And I know I've mentioned I liked this character a lot. But I'd like to close here because I think it's a fun way to think about the film. Uh, this is a film that is relentlessly bleak and upsetting. Uh, and Dustin, you mentioned how much you liked this first watch. I do remember seeing this film in theaters, and the film is so full of tension and suspense that the the final, not even car chase, but final rush to the hospital is, is kind of an electrifying mm -hmm. sequence. And I, I think Detective Loki is a uh, – yeah, right? Uh, because the film has been so bleak and pulled so few punches that it does make you wonder just how happy of an ending are we going to be allowed to experience here. Uh, and it does make you question uh, question that. And I, I think we, we get an interesting introduction to Detective Loki where he's at this uh, – he's spending Thanksgiving dinner at a, a Chinese restaurant, which is a lot of fun. But uh, he realizes uh, – what a rooster is uh, when he asks his his waiter, his very nice waiter, "Hey, uh, you think you can convince your boss to give me a discount?" Uh, and she goes, "No, he, he's a he's a rooster." And he looks down at the the Chinese zodiac in front of him. He goes, "Ah, oh, so he's selfish uh, and eccentric." And then he kind of trails off, and it's almost as if Loki's realized that he is also a rooster. rooster. Yeah. Uh, and again, uh, I'm glad you, you thought the same thing, Arthur. Yeah, I I, I love that moment from Gyllenhaal, but it, it does kind of frame Loki. Uh, as a character that is as much a protagonist as anybody else, because, you know, we've talked about him as an interesting character. He's not a great cop. He kind of sucks a little bit. He's He's got a little bit too much of a temper 
to be a super effective homicide or missing persons investigator. Uh, he allows a weapon to be stolen during an interrogation and the guy commits suicide. Yeah, he's a bad cop. I will go there. Yeah. Yes. Well, his conversations with Hugh Jackman, you can, like, always tell that Loki is, like, biting the inside of his face to not, like, meet Dover's energy. Like, he, yep. he's so clearly, like, trying to not acknowledge Dover at all so he doesn't meet his energy. And he has a pretty casual relationship with the Fourth Amendment, I might point out as well. Well, and he has a total disregard for authority, which I think makes him an interesting, like, loose cannon archetype as a cop. And again, plays into this idea of him as a rooster, as a cop that is selfish. You know, he spent seven years in a boy's home. He is not on the police force because he gives a shit about law and order. He is on the police force because he wants to help children. Uh, and I think that makes for a very interesting, uh, Clarice Starling when Clarice Starling doesn't have to navigate the bullshit that is uh, gender issues within a police force. When Clarice Starling is allowed to be as uh, much the bloodhound she wants to be, she turns into Detective Loki, who's kind of insufferable as a co-worker. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, but anyway, that's that's all. I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on him. I just thought uh, I, I wanted to end on that character because I am I am very intrigued by uh, civil servants. Uh, again, I, as much as Dustin feels owned uh, by Dover, I feel owned by Detective Loki uh, <laughs> in terms of a, a quietly angry until they're not quietly angry uh, civil servants. Nice. Nice. Um, I think there might be a musical title for that section, but it's a public enemy song and I can't quite think of the title. <laughs> well, this has been an extra long episode, so let's go ahead and take it home. I'm going to break the format once again. Dustin, what do you think, bud? Uh, shelf or trash? Shelf. Whoa, that quick, huh? Done. Shelf. Done. Well, all right. We'll move right along. Arthur, uh, where are you at with prisoners? Uh, I think it's very shelfable. I think it's very fascinating and uh, rewards multiple watches. I, I think Vanille's uh, whole approach is, is, I mean, he's one of the most fascinating directors working today. And I think this is as good of an example of why as any. So, yeah, shelf it. I think I'm going to shelf it too as well, fellas. Uh, my, my impulse is that it is a lesser Denis, but it is also kind of a great example of what the movie The Snowman wants to be. It is a film ah. in which you do, in fact, get all the clues, Mr. Policeman. You get them very early, and instead you get to spend more time thinking about how things feel than the, than the solution to a crime. And yeah, I, I think you, there are a lot of hallmarks of Denis Villeneuve's career. Uh, whether it's the noir elements of Blade Runner, uh, whether it's the the tragedies of, of everyday life mixed with the surreal of the film Arrival, uh, there's a, there's a lot to study in the film Prisoners, even though it's got moments where it's kind of eh, kind of wonky. So yeah, I'm shelving it too. All right, well there you go, dear listener. We like this movie a lot. Um, hey Arthur, are we gonna watch another one? I I think we are. Next week we're gonna be taking a look at. The 2000 psychological thriller from Sam Raimi, The Gift, starring Kate Blanchett and a host of other actors. We're going to be talking all about that. It kind of pairs well, I think, with Prisoners uh, doing this kind of additional supernatural, spooky-type procedural as well. So that's uh, what we're going to be doing next week. You can find that on Netflix, I believe, on Prime. And that is Sam Raimi's The Gift, uh, not the one with Jason Bateman and Joel Edgerton. Uh, the one with Kate Blanchett. So, uh, yeah, check that out. And Dalton, where can they talk to us at? Uh, you can uh, find us on Twitter at good underscore trash. You can email the show 
goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. The website, goodtrashmedia.com. Want to help us keep the lights on? That's patreon.com forward slash GTM. You can also hear us play uh, a a tabletop game of Monster of the Week over there if you you throw some some shekels into the pot. It's a ton of fun. Uh, Last but not least, rate, review, subscribe. You know how podcasts work. Awesome, awesome. Well, there you go, dear listener. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.